Please turn with me to Mark chapter 8 as we continue our study in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 8. And we will be looking at verses 1 through 21 of this chapter today. It has this one central idea. And some of this is probably going to seem pretty familiar to you. It's not that it's Mark is just rewriting the same thing. It's that there's similar kinds of events that happened in Jesus' ministry. And it's probably because we needed to hear them more than once. So let's, uh, before we go to his word, let's go again to him in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your holy word, we come as people who the only thing good in us is what you have given us. The only thing holy about us is that we are your people that you have set aside that we are called saints not because we are saints but because you have made us that you are even more daily sanctifying us making us more and more holy because you are good and because you love us your people not because we are deserving and so we pray as we come to your holy word that you would use it to mold us and shape us that we might be more like you, that we might love you more, and that we might love others also. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 8, as I was reading through this, and really a lot of this particular section, the last few chapters of Mark, really is this central kind of theme. It has made me think of this sociological concept known as confirmation bias. You've probably heard of confirmation bias. Over the past few months in particular, I've been reading a lot of nonfiction kinds of things about this idea, and it's it's really, I really see it more and more in my own life in particular and in the media and whatnot. It's basically the idea that any new information that we get from the outside we tend to agree with or we tend to make it fit our own ideas or what we already have. I have this set of ideas and no matter what I hear, it's going to affirm those. It's going to somehow make me seem more right. It's very prevalent in the media today. Since we near an election, it's obviously very prevalent. It doesn't matter what your candidate says, it's always going to be good. It doesn't matter what the other candidate says, it's always going to be bad. There's no way you could possibly agree with someone that you may not agree with all the time. You kind of get what I'm saying. We, we have this idea, and it's hard for us to be convinced otherwise. We don't like to be wrong. We like to be right. We don't like to change. We even use words like, well, this is just the facts. Of course you think that it is. All right? But when it comes into our hearts, our hearts are full of bias. Our hearts are full of sin. And they tend to shape what we even see as facts and truth and all this other sort of things. And these words really lose their meaning. Again, confirmation bias is a sociological concept, but it points ultimately to a spiritual problem. We are hard-headed, we are hard-hearted, and we still need to be convinced that we aren't in some giant contest that we're trying to win. In our passage today, we'll see this idea front and center. And really, we've seen it already a bunch, as I said. Today's passage is going to seem like a repeat because it follows a similar pattern 
of one that we've already seen. Jesus is going to feed lots of people, then they're going to get in a boat, and then he's going to have it out with the Pharisees, and then he's going to have it out with his own disciples, and then he's going to take a trip to heal someone, which we'll talk about that trip to heal someone next week. Some suggest maybe that this repetition shows a flaw in the book, and of course that is just absurd. Uh, I think it shows the flaw in our own hearts. And Jesus' loving kindness toward a people who need to hear the same thing several times in order to jar loose our own confirmation bias. So as we come to this passage, I want to do just that. I want to ask you to do that as you come to it. Take a step back. Pray that God would help us to see it anew. That he would help us to see it in our own hearts anew. In our own hearts and the sin there. To see others. To see him in a new way. We'll never stop being in a place where we can learn from Jesus. If you come to a passage of the New Testament and you think, oh, I've heard this before, then this is who you're, this is who I'm talking to. You, you are never going to get to a place where you stop learning from Jesus. And that's for all eternity. We will be finding him out. He is inexhaustible. And so as we come to this text, I want to break it up into three points. Jesus is still the good shepherd. A sign and a sigh, and we still don't understand. So with that, look with me at Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered... And they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry from their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into a boat with his disciples, and they went to the district of Dalmanatha. The the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them got into a boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of 
of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I almost feel like I could just say amen and be done. It really is just an indictment just from reading it. So a little bit of context here. Jesus just healed this deaf man. Remember, we met this deaf man and they, these people brought him to him and they and he met with them and he healed him, which would have brought a lot of attention to him and particularly in the Jews for the Jews in that day. Think back to the Old Testament passages, many, many Old Testament passages that talk about the one who's supposed to come and, and give sight to the blind and, and the deaf would hear and the mute would speak and the lame would walk. And there's all this sort of imagery going on in the Old Testament. And here's this man that's actually doing these things. The Jewish people knew their Bibles. They, they heard them their whole life. Kind of like we know our Bible stories here. And they heard the words of the prophets. And they knew that not just anyone was going to come and do these things. That this wasn't just a series of people that were going to come and do these things. It was one person that they were looking forward to. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah is a book that we'll be getting back to. After we finish Mark, which I look forward to, Isaiah 35 is crucial for understanding, I think, the ministry of Jesus, in particular this chapter 7 and 8 of Mark. And so look with me at chapter 35. I'm going to read the first seven verses. And just as I read through this, just hear the ministry of Jesus coming out in these words from the prophet. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and the blossom and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious, anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. And he will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy and the waters break forth in the wilderness, the streams in the desert, the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Who is coming? Who does Isaiah say is coming? Your God. What is he doing? He is making the eyes of the blind to see, the ears of the deaf to be unstopped. Who is doing this in our passages that we read? Jesus, our God, is here. Remember, what did Jesus do when he healed the deaf man? He didn't just say, your ears can hear now. He physically put his fingers in his ear as if he were literally unstopping them for this man. Do you think word may have spread after this that this Jesus who's come may have possibly been the one the prophet was talking about? Jesus is making the deaf to hear. Isn't God supposed to be doing those things? Seems like there's a connection. Couple that with the fact that John the Baptist called himself. What did he call himself? A voice crying out in the wilderness. 
where is this supposed to be happening now that all these things are supposed to be made great again? In the wilderness. Isaiah 40, which will be our first chapter when we get back to Isaiah, says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Look at Isaiah 35, verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall not belong those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. All throughout Isaiah, and you may remember this, Isaiah uses this theme of the highway. And it's, it's to connect God and man. Jesus, of course, represents that closing of the gap between God and man because of man's sin. Jesus had to come to close that gap. God became flesh and dwelt among us and did the things that Isaiah said he would do. When he got there, he healed the blind. He healed the deaf. He made the lame to walk. He healed the broken. And that is what we see as we study him. So we're going to come back to Isaiah 35 in just a minute. So you may want to keep your finger there. But I think it's important, particularly if you look at the religious leaders of the day, they knew this kind of thing was going to happen. It wasn't like the Pharisees like, oh yeah, I forgot about Isaiah 35. They didn't. They knew it was coming. And here it is. These things are happening. And now we see their reaction before us. And so that's, as we get to that, their context is very important. And so look with me then at the first point. Jesus is still the good shepherd. Back in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and he said, I have compassion on them. Look at them. There's so many of them. They've been here with me three days. I'm paraphrasing now, obviously. And if I send them back, they're not even going to make it home. They're so hungry, we need to feed them something. All right, so we see this. We see Jesus, a man of compassion. Remember what he said when he fed the 5,000? He said that he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd he is concerned for their physical condition obviously but he's also concerned for their spiritual condition jesus had no intention of sending them away hungry and his disciples pick up on that i guess in verse four notice their question and his disciples answered him because jesus said we're going to feed them well how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place Isn't that a silly question for the disciples to ask here? We might think this is silly. Maybe Jesus found a fresh batch of disciples. He got rid of the ones that didn't understand in chapter 6, and now he has a new one, so he's having to show them this whole thing over and over again. And they, of course, didn't see him feed the 5,000, so they had to see him feed these 4,000. And they're like, oh, you can't do this. And Jesus is like, aha, I can. No, this is the same group of disciples that saw him feed 5,000 people and now they're like, hey, what? how can one person do all this, Jesus? And can you imagine? And Jesus is really gentle with them. Notice what he says, verse 5. How many loaves do you have? He's going through this whole spiel with them again. We only have seven loaves, Jesus. And then he directed them to sit on the ground, just like he did in chapter 6. They broke the seven loaves. 
They gave him the fish. Everyone there ate. The story is very much the same as what we see in chapter 6. Jesus takes the fish, the loaves, he gives thanks, he gives it to the disciples, they give it to the people, and then they pick up all the leftovers that are on the ground. This time there's only seven baskets of food left over. That number might be significant. I'll ask Jesus when we get to glory. For now, just leave it alone. The significant, though, is that those seven baskets of leftover food are more than enough for the disciples to eat, which we'll get to in a minute. Jesus is taking care of his own people as well as the ones that came to this desolate place. So here's the question for us. This is the question for you to answer for yourself. Why the disciples have to be told this over and over again? Why do they have to be shown this? It's not like they're being told a story like we are. They actually witnessed it. They were there. Let me ask you, if you're wondering, I can't believe they don't get this. Man, if I was there, I'd get this. Well, then let me ask you this. Have you worried about something this week? Have you watched the news and felt anxious at all? Are you worried about the worldly possessions that you have? Are you worried about your own life? The answer is likely yes on some level for you. And if you've worried this week, then that is the same thing as being here in these disciples' shoes, wondering how can one person do all these things, Jesus? That's all of us, right? We get that. I think we're going to get to this later more with the disciples, but this section kind of lays out the groundwork for what's going on in the disciples' heart. You can imagine Jesus at this point. He's probably a bit fed up. And then he gets to meet the Pharisees. So that brings me to the second point. The sign and the sigh. Look with me at verses 11 through 13 again. So Jesus gets in a boat and he goes to this um, really hard to pronounce city with a lot of vowels in there. And uh, so I'll let you think about the pronunciation for yourself. And then the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. This is tough. Understand what's happening here. Now the Pharisees, we've met the Pharisees before, we kind of get their idea. They're looking for a sign from Jesus. There's not a whole lot of difference, by the way, between looking for a sign and worrying about something. Just so you know. Asking for a sign may have the appearance of faith. Well, if Jesus would just give me a sign. But in reality, it's more like asking for a guarantee for something that can't break. It doesn't really make sense. It's a bit over the top. Yet the Pharisees needed a sign, not to increase their faith, mind you. It's not like they're going to Jesus. Jesus, if you'll just show us something, perhaps that would help us to believe in you. They have seen the things. They know about the things. They found out here about the feeding of the 4,000. Why do you think they met Jesus as he was getting off the boat? This wasn't to increase their faith, but to test Jesus. There's a big difference there, too. They only sought to trap Jesus, which they, you know, we'll learn, we learn. They, they didn't quite learn. We've learned this is silly to do. They didn't think Jesus had anything to teach them. They only wanted to manipulate him to get what they wanted from him, which, you know, is folly. In Matthew chapter 23, I'll just read from you, read, read a passage, you don't have to turn there. Jesus in this, in this chapter goes through a long list of woes. 
on the Pharisees and the scribes. It's a long list. The whole chapter is woe to the Pharisees and the scribes. And at the very end of that chapter, remember the Pharisees and the scribes were the leaders of Israel. They were the leaders of Jerusalem. And at the end of that chapter, Jesus says this, verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And yet you, Pharisees and scribes, were not willing. Jesus came to the people of Israel, yet their hearts were hardened. And the Pharisees were their leaders. And they were constantly trying to trap Jesus. They wanted to see a sign. Which sign did they want to pick? There were so many of them. Take all of that together. The compassion that Jesus had for people. Think about the love that Jesus had for people. We see that as before he fed them. The quarreling of the leaders of Jerusalem. Well, we don't really know. This is the real Jesus. He fits all the descriptions of the Old Testament, but we're still not sure. Show us something else, Jesus. Think of the sadness of knowing that none of those people would turn to him. And now read verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek a sign? I think we all understand this sigh a whole lot. As much as we can anyway. We can't really understand it from God's perspective. But we understand it as a parent, as a friend. Have you ever had a friend or a relative, a child maybe, who isn't or who is making bad decisions? You sit down with them. You let them know your decisions are bad. Just look at look at your life. It's not good. Just the things that you were doing are not good for you. Let me help you. Not only that, you bring up all the past instances. Look, you have this pattern of hard. You have this pattern of difficult. It's not helping you. And this time they say, no, no, wait. I promise this time it's going to be different, they say. It's because no matter how much you present them with the truth, they've already made a decision. They've already decided that they're the master of their own life. They have this confirmation bias that I talked about earlier. They've already decided that no one can inform them. They will not be informed. In fact, they'd like to inform you about how right they are about how wonderful their life is going to be because of this newest bad decision that they've made. Have you ever met that person? You've probably been that person. I know I have. What was your reaction when you heard them go off the deep end yet again? And he sighed deeply in his spirit. To have the truth. Imagine Jesus. We don't really, we can't. All right, we can't. But Jesus had the truth to know the truth, to share it as well as he did, to show it as well as he did, to do all the things that he was doing and still have people come to him and say, I don't quite get it, Jesus. Could you show me again? Can you imagine that? From Jesus's vantage point, which of his miracles were they having trouble with? He fed over 4,000 people twice. He healed the deaf. He raised the dead. Which sign are they having trouble with? Careful Christians. Because we want to point our fingers and say, silly Pharisees, why don't you get this? We love the Pharisees for that reason. 
We love them because they make us feel better about our own inability to trust Jesus and what he says he will do for us, his people. We like to pick on them out of one side of our mouth and then out of the other side, praise the apostles for their faith. Or even maybe just pick a person that's currently a Christian in our own world that's famous and say, wonder how wonderful they are and how faithful they are. Just in case we would try to do that, by the way, Jesus makes sure that we can't scoot onto any other man's team as well, because he's going to show us this next little bit about the apostles. So look, that brings me to the next point. We still don't understand. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. This is the disciples that we're talking about here. And they only had one loaf with them on the boat. That's kind of one of the funniest verses in the New Testament to me, by the way. After all the fuss about bread in the preceding chapter, these guys forgot to bring any for their journey. They've only brought one. And you know how this went. If you're like me, my mom always used to call me something called a bowl washer. Have you ever heard of a bowl washer? It's someone who's constantly watching the food. You know, like Thanksgiving dinner. I knew always exactly how many rolls were left. And I watched each person go in to get seconds. All right, they got a roll. It's time for me to make my move. You know, I could have, I've had a pretty good read on how much ham there was too. I always knew when I was going to make my second trip so as to seem kind of inconspicuous, you know, wanted to be not so out there with that. I watched the bowl closely. So, you know, at this point in the trip, it's not like they all came to the realization, what? Just one loaf of bread for all of us? They've been thinking about it. They'd started slicing that loaf in their minds. Well, if we make the slices about the width of my thumb, then everyone can have one and a half pieces. If Jesus, if Jesus chooses not to eat again, maybe he'll do that so we can have just a little bit more. It's funny because you know you've done something like that yourself with food in a crowd. You know you have. Or maybe it's just me and I'm the weird one. Whatever. Jesus took this opportunity to teach them about the leaven of the Pharisees. It's almost as if Jesus is just going off this weird deep end. The disciples are worried about this one loaf of bread that's in the center of the boat. That's for some reason how I picture it. And Jesus is like, verse 15, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. When I think about bread, it's the standard recipe is about three cups of flour to one cup of water. It's a lot of material. You put all this, it's a big old bowl, right? And then you put one little tablespoon or even less of yeast in that. And that tiny bit of yeast compared to that massive amount of flour and water, it will change that entire loaf. It will integrate itself into the entire thing and cause it to increase in size three or four times. You just leave it alone. So imagine hearing a sermon that seemed biblically based, that the pastor goes all the way through the sermon and you're like, yeah, he's just reading the Bible. He's talking about the Bible. Everything seems really good. And then at the end, he says, but Jesus really isn't the son of God. Let's pray. Do you walk away from that sermon saying, you know, we could just trim that little bit of bat off. Everything would be fine. 
that one little statement that he made at the end, it'll be all right. It really doesn't affect the whole way that I see him. That little bit of untruth, really, it's okay. We'll just deal with it. No, what do we do with that situation? We throw out the baby, the bathwater, and the whole bathtub, everything, we throw it out. We're like, no, no. It doesn't matter what else you've said. You have spoken heresy. We're not going to listen to you. That little bit of falseness integrates the whole thing. And so what is Jesus telling his people? He's instructing the disciples here that it isn't just random. Again, this, Jesus didn't just pop up. Hey, remember that? Don't, don't trust the Pharisees. No, this isn't random. He knew their hearts. What were they focused on? They were focused on how big their slice of bread was going to be that evening. In the last months, what has Jesus done? He's fed over 9,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish, and they've picked up 19 baskets of food afterward. That didn't happen because they were all bakers and they were all having a great year. Jesus did every single bit of that. He fed all of those people. He made sure that there was enough for the disciples left over at the end. And now the 12 that he loves the most and he cherishes the most, the ones that are his friends on this earth, have been with him all this time. Now they, these 12 people, are worried about what they're going to eat. Next thing you know, they'll be asking Jesus for a sign. Jesus, show us a sign to prove that you're going to take care of us, please. The teaching of the Pharisees, only just a little bit, can seep in and can wreck the whole thing. We'd love it if they said, that's right, Jesus, thank you for letting us get back on track. And that was the end of the story, but that's not what they do. Look at verse 17. Well, verse 16, right after Jesus says this, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Thanks, Jesus. Okay, we're not in teaching mode right now. We're in one loaf of bread mode right now. And we need to talk about this bread. And Jesus was aware of this. And he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you, yet, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes you do not see. Having ears you do not hear. And do you not remember... When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And you can kind of see the disciples here. They're like, 12. How many bags did you pick up after the seven? Or after I fed the 4,000? Seven. Do you not yet understand? Go with me back to Isaiah chapter 35. Do you think Jesus maybe let out another sigh here when his disciples gave him this trouble? Isaiah 35, verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And the day that the Lord comes and unstops the ears of the deaf, death, those will be the days when there will be no more sighing and no more sorrow. Hear this, because Jesus' sighs are very much like our own. 
We totally get this. Jesus sighs because he sees the sins of the world, the sins of his people. We sigh because we see the sins of the world. We see the sins in our own hearts. We long for the day when we no longer have to worry about that. We no longer have to think, why do I keep doing the things that I do and I don't want to do them? And we sigh and we think, I just want this to be over. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. When he does, there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sighing. It's easy to fall into the trap that the, the, the apostles did here. It only takes a little bit to seep in a little bit of that idea that other people need Jesus more than we do to seep in before it affects all of our thoughts and all of our actions. We do this anytime that we think we've arrived, anytime we think that we've done a good job and therefore we deserve something more than what we do. If you think that's true, reread the story above. You're not standing next to Jesus in this story with your hands on your hips and some sort of accomplishment that you've done. You're the disciples squabbling over a loaf of bread when the Savior of all eternity is there in the boat with you. You're the one doing that. What are we going to eat today, Jesus? I don't know. When he's the one that just fed 4,000 people with a few loaves. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the world is absolutely nuts right now. I don't remember a time when things were in this much upheaval in my life. Yet, one thing is unchanged. Jesus is on the throne. Is Jesus looking down and thinking, what am I going to do about all this? No, he's not. Jesus is on the throne. The election in November won't change that. If you believe in Christ, you have eternal life. The virus won't change that. We don't have a promise of eternal life because we've got it all together. Even while you were in a boat arguing over a single loaf of bread, Jesus died so that we could have eternal life. He took our sins. He gave us his righteousness. Even when we are fickle, like these disciples here, like the Pharisees here. Not only that, but we experience the beginnings of that now on this earth. The more we trust him, and let me encourage you with this, the more we trust him, the more and more we will see and live without worry and without fear in this world, the more then we'll also be able to share that hope that we have with others. What is the hope that we have? That, that I have a lot of food, that I have a job. No, no, those aren't your hopes. The hope that you have in this world is Jesus Christ. He's the hope for today. He's the hope for all eternity. That doesn't change. And so in conclusion, believe the words of Jesus. Even though we forget that all he's done for us, that we argue over a loaf of bread, he still loves us and he cares about us. Those of us who are his. If you're not his this morning, call upon his name and be saved. Believe that he is your Lord. He will save you. For those of us who are his children, believe that also. Call upon his name again. It's the truth that we have to cling to more and more. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, even today I have found my heart wondering about that one loaf of bread. I have found my mind and my conscience wandering and wondering how could you possibly deal with this? Worrying about the ins and outs of the daily living and not seeing that you are Lord 
of hosts. You are the king of glory. You are the sovereign of the universe. And you also call me friend. Help us to see that more and more, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.